This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Green News Report, The Young Turks, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Majority Report, The David Pakman Show, Comedian Lee Camp, and The Story Collider. And a note for our more sensitive listeners, this episode deals with climate science and does not provide equal time for climate fiction. It's been an extraordinary week for the climate change denial industry. First up, if you want to influence the public, get a super-rich sugar daddy to buy you a TV network. Devoting some time and effort to encouraging those we know who are super-rich to invest in perhaps even establishing a new satellite TV channel is not an expensive thing. That's the bald strategy recommended by Britain's discredited climate change denier, Lord Christopher Monckton, who recently advised a so-called libertarian think tank in Australia Australia on how to use the media to benefit the coal mining industry. Moncton goes on to praise Fox News in the U.S. as a model for pushing back on Australia's new carbon tax on its biggest polluters. In the U.S., a treasure trove of documents exposing the inner workings of the climate change denial think tank, the Heartland Institute, were released this week by online media outlets thinkprogress.org and dismogblog.com, two websites that track the climate change denial industry. Someone posing as a Heartland Institute board member obtained confidential internal documents under false pretenses and passed those documents on to the websites. The documents include budgets, strategy plans, fundraising targets, including a strategy to increase funding from wealthy donors like the billionaire Charles Koch, an oil and chemical industry magnate, to expand the organization's efforts to deny climate science. The documents say, quote, other contributions will be pursued for this work, especially from corporations whose interests are threatened by climate policies. Just two of the revelations in the leak, the Heartland Institute is developing alternative lesson plans for U.S. schools to teach kids that climate science is a hoax. <laughs> Another document details the thousands of dollars in payments that the Heartland Institute gives to prominent climate change deniers every month. In a statement, the Heartland Institute did not confirm or deny the authenticity of the documents save one. They said that one was an outright fake, although the information in that document is repeated in the other documents, and some of the individuals named have have confirmed they are receiving funding. So the Heartland Institute, they were going to put hundreds of thousands of dollars into teaching kids fake science, actually changing the curriculum to say that climate science was a hoax and... I'm just flabbergasted by this report. Check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com for more on this story. It's remarkable. Peter Morici is a guy that I've interviewed in the past at MSNBC. He says some curious things. Now he believes the Obama administration has this devious plot uh, to raise gas prices so high that they nearly guaranteed themselves a loss in the next election. Yeah, I'm sure that that's the direction they're going in. Let's listen to Professor Morici. Peter, how do we get to $8? Why do you think that? Well, it seems to be the administration policy. Secretary Chu said in September of 08. Uh, you know, we want to figure out how to get gas prices in the United States up to European levels. Six weeks later, the president made him Secretary of Energy. 
when the president took office, gasoline was less than two bucks a gallon. Now it's almost four. They've doubled it in three years. These are very creative and effective guys. They know how to do the economically dumb very well. There's no reason to believe that Secretary Chu can't get it up to eight bucks a gallon. Given the growth in the global economy, recovering scarcity of oil, America mm. won't drill. Yeah. Can any human being reasonably believe that a president would want gas to be $8 before his election? It would guarantee him a loss. It's, a, it's not even 95%, I think it's like 98% chance that he would lose the election. So what kind of devious political plan is this? That makes no sense whatsoever. But Peter Murchie can't believe that. One, that's incredibly ignorant, to say the least, of politics. Number two, it's ignorant of the actual situation with gas. So uh, number one, right now, in terms of overall supply and demand, that is not what's driving gas prices. We actually have high supply and low demand, given where we are this year as opposed to previous years. So actually, prices should be lower if you know anything about economics. But the reason they're not is because of oil speculation. Now, interestingly, a professor from uh, University of Maryland, Michael Greenberger, uh, came out and testified in a hearing that the Democrats were holding on oil speculation. And he used to be the uh, main guy in charge of trading and markets for Commodity Futures Trading Commission under the Clinton administration. So his expertise is in this area. And he made some great points. And all he really did was point to Goldman Sachs studies. Now, Goldman Sachs is one of the top speculators. But nonetheless, they put out this report with this information. And Forbes magazine, you know, obviously a business magazine, did an analysis of that and they buttressed the professor's point. So let me give you the facts that they are alluding to. They say, based on Goldman's report, they believe that oil speculators are adding $23.39 a gallon, no, per barrel, okay? It's not per gallon, it's per barrel uh, to the price of gas. Now, we buy in gallons, not in barrels. So how much is, of an effect is that on us? For every uh, gallon that we buy in gas, speculators are adding basically 56 cents per gallon. So now, let's do some easy math. I, I don't know about you, but when I go to buy gas, uh, I buy about 15 gallons, okay, for my car. 15 gallons times 56 cents, every time I go to the pump, I pay an extra $8.40. Every time I go to the pump, I'm giving $8.40 to the top oil speculators in the country and in the world. That includes Goldman Sachs, some of the top banks, Coke Industries. That is not where the price of gas should be at all. In fact, do you know that oil speculators make up 65% of the market for oil? So only 35% of the market is people who actually need to buy gas, like, you know, the actual... Uh, Consumers, airline uh, companies, of course, that need gas for their, uh, for their uh, planes, etc. They make up only 35% of the market. 65% of the market is speculators. That's why they're adding such a huge amount on top of the price. Now, the speculators can also be wrong and the price of oil can drop and they can lose money. But since there's a bottom to oil, like there's a certain supply and demand that uh, sets the price at a certain point, it makes sense that they do speculation to drive the price of oil higher so they can make up the difference. That's their profit. And uh, in fact, another report shows that every month we're adding $10 billion on top of the amount of money we would have normally paid for gas. We're paying $10 billion extra. That goes to pure speculation. So 
the real reason our oil prices are higher is because of oil speculators dominating the oil market. It has nothing to do with supply and demand, and it certainly has nothing to do with President Obama's administration trying to do some devious plot about, oh, make sure you probably drive the prices of gas higher so that we can go to green energy. Right now, Obama administration is desperately trying to drive the price of gas lower, not higher, because they'd like to win re-election. It's amazing the degree to which conservatives go on television and are either absolutely ignorant of the facts or lie on purpose on a regular basis. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as 5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Just after midnight in the early morning hours of March 24, 1989, a giant oil tanker, a 200,000-ton oil tanker, found itself in just about the worst kind of trouble that an oil tanker can possibly find itself. Uh, it, had, it had just set sail from its home port. It was on its way to its destination, and then, boom, this giant tanker hit a reef in the open water and started spewing crude oil uncontrollably all over the place. The tanker had only made it about 25 miles from where it left from, a tiny port city called Valdez, Alaska. The Exxon Valdez oil spill was, at the time, the worst oil spill in U.S. history. In all, about 11 million gallons of crude oil released into Prince William Sound. But when it came to cleaning up all that oil, something very telling happened. The president at the time, George H.W. Bush, Poppy Bush, sent the commandant of the Coast Guard up to Alaska to run the cleanup effort. And in the course of running that cleanup effort, the commandant of the Coast Guard told Exxon that he was going to need 5,000 workers to help clean up the beaches up there. Exxon said, 5,000 workers? No way. Exxon told the highest ranking member of the United States Coast Guard, no. Now, the commandant of the Coast Guard, knowing that he had been sent up there by the White House, told Exxon that maybe they would have to take it up with the White House. Exxon said, well, that's no problem. And a short time later, after receiving a call from Exxon, the White House informed the commandant of the Coast Guard that actually, yeah, he was not getting those 5,000 cleanup workers that he had requested. Fast forward to 2001. A state-owned oil company of India wants in on a giant oil drilling project happening off the coast of Russia. India's state-owned oil company gets a sign-off from Russia, but there's a little problem. The company that's operating the project is ExxonMobil, and ExxonMobil is not so sure about the Indians getting in on this thing. In a meeting at the White House that year, India's prime minister tries to lobby then-president George W. Bush, Bush the Jr., uh, to push Exxon along on this issue, saying, why don't you just tell them what to do? President Bush's response, quote, nobody tells those guys what to do. For ExxonMobil, one of the largest corporations in the whole world, 
pleasing a U.S. president, whether it's George W. Bush or George H.W. Bush or any other president, just has never really been necessary. Exxon, after all, is going to be around a lot longer than any U.S. president, than any Indian prime minister, than any lowly U.S. Coast Guard commandant. As the author and journalist Steve Call puts it in his new book about ExxonMobil, which is called Private Empire, quote, the time horizons for Exxon's investments stretched out longer than those of almost any government it lobbied. Quote, we see governments come and go, Exxon CEO Lee Raymond once remarked. Exxon could afford to carry themselves with this type of bravado because, as Steve Call writes, quote, in effect, Exxon was America's energy policy. Certainly there was no governmental policy of comparable coherence. Exxon has been able to maintain that sort of staying power, not just because of its multiple presidential administration's long time horizons on its money-making plans, uh, but also because of its single-mindedness, on its single-minded focus. I mean, the oil industry is the most profitable venture that humankind has ever known. ExxonMobil can essentially think of itself as its own country. In practical terms, it is its own country. Exxon's annual revenues are larger than the annual GDP of all these countries that you see zooming up the screen right now. Exxon has a bigger economic footprint than about 150 countries. So if, if you're a giant oil company like Exxon, what exactly do you spend all that money on? Well, obviously you spend it on making yourself even more money. This week in Houston, Texas, the oil industry got together to show off its latest breakthrough technological achievements. Most of these achievements, of course, have to do with allowing oil companies to drill for oil further and faster and in riskier environments than has ever been done before. Earlier this week, engineers announced plans to drill the deepest undersea well ever drilled, ever on Earth, 12,000 feet deep. They say it will make it possible for companies to drill into the mantle of the Earth. The big draw today in Houston was this contraption. Look, appropriately named the CLAW. The CLAW is an incredible technological feat that allows oil companies to recover oil platforms that have sunk. Platforms that have sunk to the bottom of the ocean after some horrible drilling accident. You send the claw down, you scoop up your damaged oil platform, and then of course you can see what you can salvage so you can move on to the next project. A little oil in the water, well, that's the cost of doing business. All of the big technological advancements in the incredibly wealthy oil industry right now. The thing that the oil industry appears to be spending all of its money on right now to the extent they're spending it on anything other than themselves and joy all of the things they are investing in are ways to drill further. Not necessarily ways to drill safer, and certainly not ways to clean that sort of thing up when it goes wrong. While the profits for that sort of drilling end up being private, while the profits may allow a single company to be, say, wealthier than 150 separate countries, the cost of pursuing those profits, well, that very often ends up being public. We are the ones who pay for that. You know, us and the otters. <laughs> we pay for that, even if our own president appears to be taking orders sometimes, not from us, but from the only person more powerful than an American president, an oil company CEO.
You are all familiar with James Hansen. He is the um, NASA Institute for Space uh, Studies at the Goddard Space Flight Center scientist uh, who, who said about tar sands, has been warning about climate change for quite some time, said about tar sands that it is game over for climate change if that reserve is tapped. The amount of CO2 that will go into the atmosphere will be irreversible. And the greenhouse uh, effects of that will essentially mean that climate change is a done deal. I should also mention uh, Robert Gardner, the guy who invented the uh, rocket from uh, Worcester, Massachusetts. I'm paid by the Worcester Chamber of Commerce, just to mention that every time his name comes up. So, fizz.org is sent to us by uh, longtime listener Eric. Fizz.org reports that two scientists who apparently uh, were, were, were working on a, on a separate project, Van Oldenburg and Harsma, they got sick and they decided, uh, essentially, to, uh, these are two researchers at the Royal Netherlands Meteorological Institute. They were taking a break from research because they were sick uh, or due to someone's illness. And so they got to look back through some older publications and they came across a paper published in the Journal of Science in August 1981, written by a team of atmospheric physicists led by James Hansen. It was 10 pages in science, and it covered a lot of advanced topics related to climate, indicating the level of knowledge known about climate science even at that time. The paper essentially outlined predictions as to the rate of growth of CO2 in the atmosphere, both uh, naturally occurring and man-made, projected a future rise uh, based upon continued use of fossil fuels by, hum uh, by humans. These two scientists uh, from the Netherlands, Van Oldenburg and Harsma, overlaid data gathered by NASA and, re and uh, the, their outfit, um, in the Netherlands and found that the projections made by Hansen and his team were basically spot on. This is now 32, 31 years ago. Hansen wrote in the original paper, it is shown that the anthrop anthropogenic carbon dioxide warming should emerge from the noise level of natural climate variability by the end of the century. In other words, man-made carbon dioxide warming, man-made global warming, will statistically be able to be picked out from natural climate variability by the end of the century. In other words, year 2000 or so. And there is a high probability of warming in the 1980s. Potential effects on climate in the 21st century include the creation of drought-prone regions in North America, 
and Central Asia as part of a shifting uh, climate zones, erosion of the West Antarctic ice sheet with a consequent worldwide rise in sea level and the opening of the fabled Northwest Passage. 31 years later, drought-prone regions are receiving less rainfall. The Antarctic ice has begun to crack and crumble. Bowhead whales are using the Northwest Passage as a polar shortcut. Scientists wrote, in light of historical evidence, uh, excuse me, the Hansen wrote, uh, in light of historical evidence that it takes several decades to complete a major change in fuel use, this makes large climate change almost inevitable, Hansen wrote in 1981. He wrote, in anticipation of the difficulties of a global shift away from dependence on carbon dioxide emitting fossil fuels, writing, quote, CO2 effects on climate may make full exploitation of coal resources undesirable. An appropriate strategy may be to encourage energy conservation and develop alternative energy sources while using fossil fuels as necessary during the next few decades. Well, those next few decades have passed. And as he was writing that, Ronald Reagan was pulling down the solar panels from the uh, roof of the White House. So uh, there's your uh, where effed moment of the day. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Fox News got wind of a new report that notes that nighttime temperatures rose slightly in areas with wind farms, so they ran a series of segments talking about how wind farms cause global warming. Of course, Rush Limbaugh did also. Let's take a look at some of that video and audio. First, the Fox clip, which is quite compelling, I must tell you. Been busy pushing the benefits of wind farms, but it turns out those benefits may contribute to global warming. According to a new study, temperatures increase four of the... In uh, near four of the largest wind farms in Texas. The problem? The giant propellers cause the air to circulate more. Mm. That means that during the night, warmer air from higher up in the atmosphere is pulled down to mix with the cooler ground temperatures. Uh -huh. Wind ain't working. There you go. And then, of course, Rush Limbaugh also getting in on the action. Then I'll tell you what the actual science is behind it, but we'll let them have their fun, at least at the beginning here. Okay. Understandable. By the way... From Reuters, large wind farms may have a warming effect on the local climate. Research in the United States showed on Sunday casting a shadow over the long-term sustainability of wind power. Now, don't you just love this? Here they come up with these windmills, which everybody wants when they're not in their neighborhood, including the late Senator Kennedy, big believer in wind farms, but nowhere near where he lived. Because they're noisy. Okay. 
So the reality is that this is not true. This just brings down some of the um, some of the warmer air. It brings it down immediately there. And this is a technique that's also actually used with uh, vents at orange groves. Now, no one is saying that orange groves are causing global warming, and it's the exact same thing. And the the, the people involved in the study have also said the exact same thing, which is to say that this is creating global warming is a complete farce. We shouldn't be surprised that Fox News was very into distorting it, though. Right. Uh, we are not going to expect Fox to uh, to recite the uh, the follow-up comments of the researchers there. What, what do you expect? I, I think, Natan, that this is one of those great opportunities to point out how you're just not going to hear facts on Fox. They are telling you a story. They are pulling a headline. No actual fact. People shouldn't be surprised. No, I actually I expect this. I mean, we, every day we come up with a new thing that happened on Fox the day before where they misconstrued the facts or misrepresented the science. So, business as usual. There you go. I've been thinking about today And I'm sorry for the way I don't think, just say There's no delay. So in these climate uh, change denying uh, videos, whether it's Christian Broadcasting Network, Pat Robertson, etc., or whoever else, they say, oh, you know what, uh, they don't allow people on TV uh, that are, say that climate change uh, isn't real. Now here's the reality. Uh, me, uh, they did a study, Think Progress did, uh, I'm sorry, Media Matters did, and uh, they looked at the Sunday shows in America, now this is in the U.S., and nightly news, okay? So, first of all, the amount of stories uh, have started to go down dramatically. In 2009, uh, there were uh, over 60 stories or uh, 60 minutes of airtime on ABC, CBS, NBC, and, uh, on the, and Fox on the Sunday shows. By 2011, it had gone down by 90% on the Sunday shows. On the nightly news, it had gone down 72%. So they're not even covering it. And when they do, uh, one of the reasons why it's not near zero is because Fox News is covering. You know what they're covering? Climate gate. The fake controversy about the hacked emails, etc. right? So it's not like they're covering it like, oh my God, we have climate warming. They're like, no, 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 <laughs> climate gate, we got you, right? So, uh, and then... The three uh, networks combined, again, in their coverage, covered Donald Trump twice as much as they covered climate change in all of 2011. So that's how important they think it is. And then here comes my favorite. When, uh, they, had, when they did discuss climate change, 50% of the time, it was politicians that they talked to. Uh, this is on the Sunday shows. 45% of the time, it was media figures. Zero percent of the time it was scientists. And among the politicians, 68 percent of the time it was Republicans that they asked, and only 32 percent of the time they asked Democrats. So overall, on television in the United States, you are getting an overwhelming message. If you get any message at all, if they even bother to cover it, which they largely don't, but if they cover it at all, you are getting a message that is so against the science of climate change. You're getting a great majority of Republicans saying, oh, no, yeah, that's ridiculous. They don't bring on any scientists. At least the nightly news of the people they interviewed or talked to, 
20% were scientists. Are they not merciful? Okay, but the Sunday shows, I know they're more political, so they talk to politicians more, but no scientists at all in three years. Okay, and so, and the main, and the one that covered the most last year was Fox News in how they denied climate change. And you know, it has a real impact on public opinion when it comes to climate change because uh, Gallup recently uh, released a poll that talks about whether or not Americans see climate change as a real problem. Do they see it as a priority that a politician should focus on? And what they found was that 36% say they worry a great deal about air pollution and 48% about pollution of drinking water. However, at the very bottom of the list is climate change in terms of what they're most concerned about. So that's a little uh, problematic. Yeah, and uh, in other polls, they show that they actually do, despite all this propaganda in the US that is on the side of the oil industry, etc., our media is so corrupt. It's really, really sad. Uh, but. Uh, they still haven't won on the issue. When you look at the polls, overwhelming majority of Americans say uh, there is climate change, it is man-made, we should do something about it. The problem is when it gets to their priorities, it's at the bottom of their priorities. Yes. And the reason is because it gets almost no coverage and when it does, it's skeptical coverage. So people think, well, it must not be a big problem. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. On the phone, it is a pleasure to welcome to this program Dr. Michael Mann. He is a professor at uh, Penn State University. He was the lead author on the observed climate variability and change chapter of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. This is the IPCC, the third scientific assessment report in 2001. He was the organizing committee chair for the National Academy of Science Frontiers of Science in 2003. Uh, he is the uh, man who uh, developed the hockey stick graph and author of The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars uh, because one certainly led to another, didn't it, Michael? It's, it sort of escalated uh, the wars, uh, if you will. Um, there has uh, been an ongoing uh, attempt uh, by uh, certain vested interests to try to discredit the science linking climate change and uh, the emission of uh, carbon into the atmosphere, the burning of fossil fuels and the emission of carbon into the atmosphere. Uh, there has been an effort um, for uh, several decades now um, uh, to try to discredit the science uh, linking uh, our human activity to climate change. All right, well, let's, let's back up just a little bit because um, I am not uh, terribly uh, scientifically prolific and 
you know, when it comes to climate change, I simply look at what the preponderance of the, of the scientists say. And uh, because I have some faith in, uh, in science and scientists, uh, that's essentially, uh, I take that warning at, at face value. But what is the, the hockey stick graph? So the, the hockey stick graph was this graph that we uh, produced uh, more than a decade ago. It was an attempt to uh, extend the temperature record back in time because we only have widespread thermometer measurements around the globe going back about a century. And so from those data, we know that the, the, the globe has warmed about a degree and a half Fahrenheit over the past century. But what that instrumental record doesn't tell us is how unusual is that sort of warming. Is it possible that that sort of uh, warming happens naturally uh, from one century to the next? And so to try to address questions like that, my uh, co-authors and I used indirect measures of climate, what we call proxy data. These are things like tree rings and, and uh, uh, the layers of growth of coral, um, ice cores, uh, various um, indirect measures of climate um, that we can turn to to try to estimate how the climate changed farther back into the past. And uh, by analyzing those sorts of data, we uh, determined that you know, the, the globe uh, was relatively warm about a thousand years ago. It cooled into the depth of what we call the Little Ice Age um, uh, into the 17th through 19th centuries. Uh, so if you want, you could think of that as a long handle, a downward tilting handle. Uh, and then over the past century, of course, the globe warmed. And uh, you might think of that as the blade, the two of them together forming something that looks sort of like a hockey stick. And what the blade, you know, the end of the record uh, indicated was that um, the, the current warmth uh, appears to be unprecedented as far back as we were able to go, a, a thousand years. Um, and uh, since then, many other studies have come to the same conclusion. But uh, keep in mind, this is just one uh, piece of evidence for the reality of human-caused climate change. There are literally dozens of independent lines of evidence, and it's because of that. It's because there are many different uh, lines of evidence. It's because not just one or two or a handful of scientists, but scientists around the world world uh, agree that climate is changing and that we're responsible for it. Uh, that's the reason that uh, we accept um, uh, the, the conclusions of the scientific community. It isn't just because of one 10-year-old study by me and my co-authors. Right. That, I mean, that is exactly the point, isn't it? Is because it is, um, uh, the, the, this is a body of, of evidence that far, um, I guess, uh, is, 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 is incredibly transcendent of one person uh, yep. and one study. Now, w let me just ask one question here. Now, when you take, um, you, you check tree rings, when you, tr uh, you, when you, when you measure uh, coral, when you uh, measure ice core, you do this from disparate geographic locations. Is that right? That's that's right. Although I, I have to confess, my job's sort of easy. I uh, make use of all the hard work that other paleoclimate scientists have done for decades to try to recover these amazing records around the world: uh, coral records from the tropical oceans, the southern hemisphere, the northern hemisphere, ice cores from the North Pole, the South Pole, and high elevation regions, even in the tropics uh, where ice exists, like Mount Kilimanjaro, um, and tree uh, ring records from the continents. And so, because there is this wealth of data. Data, um, that has been produced by a community-wide effort, um, paleoclimate scientists working to produce, you know, these very uh, large uh, data sets uh, that scientists like 
uh, myself have been able to draw upon that work and to try to synthesize uh, the information contained within all those records. And so that's uh, ultimately, you know, what what we did. Um, and you know, it led to this this figure, the hockey stick. Like I said, it's right. not the pillar uh, that uh, of evidence that our detractors would like you to think. You know, it's not like the case for climate change rests on this. But it was an iconic figure. It told a simple story. You didn't need to understand the physics of how a climate model works to understand what this graph was telling you. And I think it became a potent image, especially to uh, our critics, to those looking to discredit the science linking human activity and climate change. And 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 I and I asked that question about the 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 disparate regions of the world that that data comes from because often we'll hear someone claiming that uh, the the ice core of uh, Greenland or something uh, right. you know shows something different but but you can't measure from just or I should say it's not as accurate or it's not as solid evidence when you're talking about one specific tiny area. No, absolutely, and I'll give you an example. Right now I'm in Vienna for a scientific conference, and uh, the when you talk to the Europeans, it's actually been a relatively cool winter here. Uh, not a, a record-breaking cold uh, year, just sort of an average uh, relatively cold winter. Um, so, you know, if you only had records for Europe, you would have no idea that we have been breaking all-time uh, records for warmth throughout the U.S. Uh, over the past uh, several months. In fact, uh, we've um, uh, set uh, new records. Uh, for um, high temperatures around the country, uh, you know, in terms of the number of high temperature records that we've been breaking over the past few months, um, it's unprecedented for the U.S. So, you know, you wouldn't know that if you were just in Europe or if you were just in Greenland, for example. And what you have to do is synthesize information from around the globe, because a lot of the things that influence climate regionally, like the El Nino phenomenon, mm -hmm. they they do things like they change the pattern of the jet stream or they change the directions of ocean currents and those sorts of things don't necessarily change the average temperature of the globe very much but they do redistribute heat they do cause certain regions to warm while the regions uh, cool and so you really have to average over all of the different regions to really figure out what the global temperature is actually doing right I mean that's that's one of the reasons why I mean I get so frustrated with the with the notion of of someone saying you know it's snowing out it must be there's no global warming or even frankly you know the the march that we had in um, uh, in New York was right. ridiculously warm, but I hesitate to say I can experience in an immediate fashion and know that this is a function of global warming. You need to really look at it in a, in a much broader context. No, exactly, and that's and, and you can sort of do that. I mean, with the you know with the the records we've seen over the past few months. So if you point to any one day that was you know unusually warm, you know in March in Washington D.C. or, or New York, um, you know that's weather, right? It's the random rolls of the weather dice. But what climate change is doing is it's loading those dice. Okay, so we're seeing sixes appearing far right. more often than they ought to. And if you look at the entire past decade, it turns out that those sixes are coming up twice as often as they should with a fair die. We're breaking all-time warmth records at twice the rate we would expect in the absence of climate change. Um, for the first three months of this year, we are breaking those records at 20 times the rate that we would expect um, if there had been no climate change. And the climate models that we use to try to project what you know, will happen in the future say that this record-breaking warm winter 
that will be business as usual. It will be a typical winter and a typical, a typical spring um, if we continue on this course that we're on with fossil fuel burning and warming of the globe. All right. Now, so let's move to the other part of uh, uh, let's move you know specifically to your book and it it details the and it, and it walks us through the the relentless attacks that you have been under uh, because I think in many respects because the hockey stick graph was so iconic and so easy to digest uh, right. that um, rather than it, it its scientific implications it's almost I think you were attacked because of its effectiveness uh, in expressing what was going on in a way that most of us can understand Tell, tell me what the Serengeti strategy is, and, and uh, as you describe it in your book, right. and, and, and how you were uh, subjected to it. Yeah, I was, in fact, uh, that, that's very much what I was thinking about as, um, as you were uh, sort of framing the issue. Um, you know, there has been this effort uh, for some time. It didn't start with me. Uh, my good friend and, and colleague, Ben Santer, um, from the Lawrence, Berk uh, Lawrence Livermore Laboratory in California, uh, played an influential uh, role in the second assessment report uh, of uh, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, back in 1995, and he was fiercely attacked. Um, there were op-eds uh, that appeared um, in the Wall Street Journal uh, attempting, uh, attempting to discredit him, to challenge um, his uh, integrity, um, uh, to smear him, essentially. And uh, the same thing uh, happened uh, with me in, in when the hockey stick became a prominent sort of uh, icon in the climate change debate. Those looking to... Uh, discredit the science, uh, and many of them uh, are allied with fossil fuel industry uh, front groups and organizations um, that are using the same playbook that the tobacco industry used mm -hmm. decades ago to try to discredit the science linking you know, their product with human health um, uh, impacts like lung cancer. Well, what we've had I I more recently is uh, groups allied with the fossil fuel industry um, trying to discredit the science linking their product, <laughs> fossil fuels, with the health of the planet. And uh, so we came, you know, my, my work, because that uh, the hockey stick was uh, became an icon in the climate change debate, this um, Serengeti strategy that I refer to is this strategy to isolate a single scientist, try to make it sound like the entire weight of evidence rests on that one scientist. Um, so you, you set up this straw man that the, the science of climate change is this house of cards, you know, resting on a single 10-year-old hockey stick study and a single scientist like me um, who published the study, when in fact the reality is that uh, very much the opposite of, of a house of cards. Uh, the science is like a puzzle, right? We're still, there's still things we're trying to figure out. We don't have all the answers, but it's like a puzzle that's mostly filled in, and we can see the picture. And sure, there are a few pieces that are missing, but it's not going to change the overall picture of the fact that, you know, we are changing the climate, we're warming the globe. But if you can set up this straw man as those seeking to undermine the science have sought to do, to make it seem like it all depends on one person, then you focus all of your, uh, you know, all of the attacks on this one person. You try to discredit them. You try to make an example of them for their colleagues to say to their colleagues, if you come out, if you participate in, you know, in the public discourse on this issue, then we will 
will do the same thing to you. I think it's to send a message to other scientists to make an example of me uh, um, to warn them that if you, you know, if your science uh, plays a prominent role in the case for human-caused climate change, if you participate in the public discourse in the, in the public sphere uh, talking about this issue, we're going to come after you too. Um, and it's much the way that you know lions of the Serengeti will try to pick off an individual uh, animal at the edge of a herd rather than try to take down. They know they can't take down the whole herd, but they'll go for that vulnerable animal at the edge of the herd. And they try to do the same thing. Climate change deniers try to do the same thing with scientists. But all I agree is to join the stampede. You should never take more than you give in the circle of life. your moment of clarity from LeeCamp.net. We call it Mother Earth, right? Mother Earth. She's our mom. We're her children, right? Maybe unwanted children, but still children nonetheless. So that means we're still here. We're basically still inside her womb, preparing for our birth when we finally venture out and explore the galaxy, explore the heavens on our own. But the way things are going... I think we may ultimately be a miscarriage, and at that point, the entire universe will breathe a giant sigh of relief. When a shark is pregnant, it has dozens of fetal sharks in its womb, and some of the bigger ones actually eat some of the smaller ones before they're born. They eat their brothers and sisters. I feel like we might be doing that. We run around waging war, killing each other, trying our damnedest to destroy Mother Earth. Quick side note, if you ever see a pregnant woman... And she says, I can feel him kicking. He's going to be a soccer player. She's lying. He's going to be a d He's already kicking pregnant women. We're kicking the out of our mother. Kicking her, fracking her, drilling her for oil, filling her with poisonous fumes. It's like if you saw on a sonogram that your baby was smoking a cigarette. You'd be like, what the f***? Put that down. You're not supposed to smoke in there. Look, often miscarriages are the body's way of flushing out a defective fetus that could not have existed on its own. Maybe that's what we are. The Earth tried to have a kid once with the dinosaurs, didn't work out too well, they were too bitey. She's trying again with humans, but I think we're defective. We're a bit too blow things uppy. I don't think she should unleash us onto the galaxy, infecting the Milky Way. It would be like letting a boa constrictor loose in a daycare. It might not destroy everything, but the afternoon's not going to end well for someone. Words are flowing out like endless rain into a paper cup They slither while they pass, they slip away across the universe Hey, this is Lee Camp. I hope you've enjoyed having my Moment of Clarity rants pumped into your skulls. If you have, you would almost definitely love my free Moment of Clarity backstage podcast where I discuss the topics of the day. You know, the little things like the corporate raping and pillaging of our world. I also have on fun, awesome some guests like this lady. My name is Janine Garofalo. This guy. Hi, I'm John Oliver. 
even sometimes this guy. This is Greg Palace, and I've got my zipper caught in moments of clarity. Free at LeeCamp.net, iTunes, Stitcher, or the Android app. Plus, there's a Moment of Clarity book for those of you who thought, I love Moment of Clarity, but I hate how I can't lick it. Well, now you can. The Moment of Clarity book and ebook. Get it at LeeCamp.net or on most e-reader platforms. And remember, keep fighting and stay angry. Which dance before me like a million eyes They call me on and on across the universe It's amazing what we let our teachers teach us. That's the thought that was going through my mind one morning a couple years ago when after looking into the mirror above the bathroom sink holding a razor in my hand, I put one foot on the toilet and proceeded to shave my balls. By balls, of course, I mean my scrotum, but that word is so scientific and Latin-sounding, and when you use it, it sort of implies this medical experience with the human anatomy, and I had no medical training and felt absolutely no qualification to bring such a sharp object so close to my, well, balls. I was just a guy, a guy shaving his balls. Uh, an aside here, word to the wise for anyone who uh, might want to shave his balls or bring a sharp object so close to that part of the body that represents the genetic material's only barrier uh, between it and the rest of the world. Shaving cream is not so helpful as it sort of makes it hard to see what's going on. Aftershave, on the other hand, can be quite soothing if also a little weird to feel that cool tingly sensation down there. But that's just a digression. The thing is, it wasn't my first time shaving gonads that morning. In college, I had done it dozens of times, but never to my own gonads. Uh, the thing is, back in college, I was studying in great detail the reproductive system of a species of mollusk that is known as the most, or one of the most, uh, sexually prolific animals known to science. That's the zebra mussel, uh, who has been blamed for driving native mussels and clams into extinction because it reproduces so much and so well uh, since it was introduced here from Europe. Um, and uh, it's one of those uh, evil invasive species that you hear about. It's been called a scourge to biodiversity. The zebra mussel, whose pale, soft, naked body I would scoop from its shell and then suspend in hot paraffin wax and then upon cooling slice into thin cross-sections. And under a microscope, those cross-sections revealed millions of sperm and eggs frozen in time, never to procreate, but also never to be launched forth into that vast, lonely emptiness of the water column with only a slight mathematical chance of finding that counterpart gamete to do what it had been destined to do with. Yes. <laughs> Inevitably, enough of those gametes find each other and uh, they produce millions and millions of baby zebra mussels, so that's nice. Uh, we were studying the chemistry behind how zebra mussels do it. A few years earlier, my advisor, Dr. Fong, had discovered that when given Prozac, uh, zebra mussels suck it in with their mouths and then spew back within seconds lots of sperm and eggs. It's 
pretty pornographic, actually. Um, he had actually won an award for this. Uh, he was awarded the Ignoble Prize. Uh, it's kind of a prestigious award, but only kind of. For instance, uh, one year the award for medicine went to this doctor who repeatedly cracked the knuckles in his left hand, but never the right hand, uh, every day for 60 years. The right hand was a uh, control for testing the theory that uh, repeated knuckle breaking leads to arthritis. And you'll be happy to know that knuckle breakers among you that it doesn't. Anyway, Dr. Fong's research, honestly, Dr. Fong's research uh, wasn't a giant leap for mankind either. Um, it actually had been long known that serotonin, the chemical that boosts positive ideas and, and feelings in the brain and is boosted by Prozac, um, is also the chemical that causes clams and mussels to spawn. Um, it's one of those really cool ancient chemicals that uh, allows these primitive small organisms to do amazing things without having to think about it. Uh, specifically, serotonin uh, triggers an awareness of resources in the, in the, in the environment and um, uh, an awareness of when to reproduce. Um, so, for example, when uh, a male roundworm encounters a lot of food in his environment, instinctively, well, serotonin is, is released, and instinctively he knows that he should stay put, start picking out, and find a sexy hermaphrodite worm to make babies with. This is one of the many, many weird things I learned from Dr. Fung, who is always most excited about reproduction. Or sex, he would say, raising his eyebrows up and down. <laughs> the look was half provocative and half profound. This, he would say, is what it's all about. Well, Indeed, uh, after taking class after class with him, I too began to think that that's what life was all about, uh, this Darwinian struggle to compete for resources and to reproduce. It's what millions of base pairs of DNA uh, through evolution have coded for, uh, getting resources and having sex. I thought of it as my new religion, replacing the worldviews I, I uh, grew up with in the Catholic Church, those lessons about you know what's what's right, and especially about what's wrong. Uh, that I that I got every Sunday, sitting next to my parents and my five brothers and sisters. Um, now I was looking at life through the lens of evolution and ecology. It's just what stuck with me. Uh, it stuck even as I changed careers and became a journalist. Meanwhile, I got married at 25, which was relatively young compared to my more professional peers. But my wife and I had been dating since high school, and uh, we had been best friends since I was an altar boy. And uh, <laughs> we just felt uh, somehow we were, we were still really in love, and like two zebra mussel gametes that somehow inexplicably find themselves bumping into each other in the vastness of the water column. We felt lucky. And so when we hit our mid-20s, uh, right at the beginning of our careers and when our health was as good as it gets, we decided to have a baby. And just after she was born, I shaved my balls, I went to a urologist, and I got a vasectomy. When we moved to Brooklyn, 
we thought it was for the culture, but we soon realized it was for the playgrounds. <laughs> the toddler stage of parenthood can only be made sane uh, by the constant reassurance from other parents that what we're doing is completely impossible and that no one gets sleep anymore. You go to the playground to find people just like you who feel your pain. So it's now pretty weird when we go and those other parents are starting to go for child number two. And uh, they ask me why we're stopping at, at number one. Um, I was raised in a big family. I'm one of six, I say to them, sort of giving them that look. You know, so I've done the big family thing already. Sometimes that works, but uh, sometimes there's the skeptic, the person who's unimpressed by that. They, they say so stuff like, well, my husband, he's one of eight. That's usually like a competitive mom. <laughs> but then I have a counter. I go, well, my mom, she's one of 14 kids. And that stops them in their track. They're dazed, <laughs> clobbered by the weight of that number, the fact that two people could give rise to 14 new lives. Here we are, barely surviving one, one tiny baby. And they had 14. Irish Catholic, they'll say to me, more confirming than asking. Yeah, with some German mixed in, but yeah, I'll say. And without actually explaining why I got a vasectomy at age 27, it provides this giant red herring uh, that is enough to change the subject. Fourteen kids, damn. Yeah, damn. But it's not the real reason. Uh, the real reason, it's, it's not so intellectual as much as it's instinctual. It's this knee-jerk reaction that I had. Frankly, I'm uncomfortable being an invasive species myself. Like the zebra mussel. Who, by the way, although constantly blamed for outcompeting these native clams into extinction, has never been proven to do so. Ecologists now think that the guilty species is us. Um, you know, long before those zebra mussels were introduced to the Great Lakes, the native mussel and clam populations were already in the decline in the face of changes we were making to their habitat. Soil erosion, pesticides, and who do you think introduced the zebra mussels in the first place? It's true that biodiversity around the world is shrinking. There are fewer and fewer species. And it's pretty easy for scientists to link that trend with our own headlong rush to reproduce more and to use up more resources. Because no amount of recycling or using cloth diapers or becoming a vegetarian can offset adding a new homo sapien to the planet. It's just a matter of resources, and each of us uses a lot of them. As of a few months ago, uh, the human population is 7 billion. There are 7 billion people, and counting, and you know, eating, and driving, and clearing land, and overfishing, and using electricity at every moment of our lives but we're also falling in love and staying in love and deciding to have babies. And we're learning and we're teaching. And like I said, it's amazing what we let our teachers teach us, how we make our minds so hospitable for their ideas, colonizing 
our brains with their own thoughts that either coexist with the old ones or drive them into extinction. But then what do we do with those new ideas? Dr. Fang never told me to get a vasectomy. He never implied it. But he created this chemical reaction in response to my environment. He gave me an instinct. I'm in Massachusetts, and I've been listening to your show for a couple months now. Big fan. Just something's been bugging me. It's not just on your show. It's it uh, seems to be going around. This whole white privileged line of crap. I was born and raised in Western Massachusetts in a city called Springfield. I'm white. I'm a registered Democrat. I just the the the, the whole white privilege thing is ridiculous. There's no such thing. Maybe for the one percent, for sure for the one percent. But for real America, non-existent. You want to talk south of Maryland? All bets are off. But in the real world, in the Northeast, where people actually think and don't base their lives on a you know work of fiction, a fairy tale, if you will, there's no such thing. I use one example to back it up. Okay, affirmative action. It's actually an advantage. To be black, you can score lower on a standardized test for the civil service exam than I can, and get the job that I'm better qualified for. Racism exists, absolutely, no doubt about it. Did Trayvon Martin get killed because he was black? Most definitely. Does George Zimmerman deserve to be killed? Absolutely, and I hope they stick the needle in him. But that doesn't change the fact that being born white does not. Give you any privileges? Being born wealthy gives you privileges. Being born white does not. It's not a popular view, but it's the reality of the situation. I have no advantages. I am very poor. I'm very low on the socioeconomic scale. I have zero advantages. If I go into a job with my civil service score in hand, a black guy with a score nine points lower than mine. We'll get the job before I do every time. It's sanctioned racism, and if the blacks want to whine about racism, the first thing they should do is vote down affirmative action. But it's not going to happen because it benefits them. They only complain about the racism that doesn't benefit them. I'm poor, very poor. I get food stamps. I'm on Mass Health, which is you know. Courtesy of Romney. Before Romney, I couldn't get myself because I was a white male. Now, I do. Before Romney Care, I was denied mass health because I was a white male and I should be able to support myself. It doesn't matter what color you are—black, white, Spanish, Asian—all that matters is how much money you have. That's all. There's no privilege to being white, and there's no privilege to being male for that matter either. Because a girl can score lower on the test than I can too, and still get my job. So, just wanted to put that out there. Obviously, not a popular opinion, but I really can't listen to one more minute 
of this white privilege garbage without speaking up. Um, again, love the show. Very sorry that I disagree with your stance on this issue. Um, however, I do agree with you on quite a few issues. Just wanted to let you know how I feel about this. Thank you very much for your time, and keep doing a great job, and I'm going to keep listening. Thanks for listening, everyone. So Dave in Massachusetts, who we just heard from, left that message a couple of weeks ago, but I am playing it now for a very specific reason. But before we get to that, I want to play just a quick clip of a message that was played on the previous episode. This one is from Matthew in California, who called in to describe a bit of what uh, black burden means to him in his daily life. So take a listen. Watching two waitresses fight over which table to seat me at because neither one of them thinks I'm a good tipper because I'm black. When going to bars, I make sure I always, always approach the bar where a spot where the previous customer hasn't left their tip because if I do, the bartender always thinks I'm trying to steal his tip because I'm black. So to begin, let's just pretend, uh, first of all, that Dave from Massachusetts' message was not full of completely self-defeating statements about privilege. Uh, you know, it, it is essentially impossible to believe that Trayvon Martin was killed because of his race, but to also believe that there is no privilege in being white. Those are diametrically opposed positions, and Dave took both of them. So for the sake of having an interesting conversation about this, let's pretend that there were fewer holes in, in Dave's message than there actually were and just move on. Um, so so we have these two clips uh, from, from these two people who clearly have diametrically opposed perspectives on white privilege. Uh, and yet I see them as two sides of the same coin. And, and so that's, that's what I want to talk about today. Um, but to be clear, I am not about to draw a ridiculous false equivalency and claim that both of these people have valid points to make. I unequivocally believe in, uh, in privilege of many varieties, oppression of various groups, and of black burden in, uh, in this case in particular. So the similarity I see between these two people is in their hyper-localized perspective on the issue of privilege. So for Matthew in California, he was referring to many situations in his day-to-day -day life in which he experiences discrimination in, in an almost constant way. And Dave uh, used his own perspective on his economic situation to then extrapolate his experience to the rest of society. And so as I like to do, as, as hopefully you know, uh, I, I want to make these issues more complicated in order to gain a greater understanding. So here are two statements which are undoubtedly true about Matthew's situation. So first of all, he has clearly experienced genuine discrimination in exactly the ways that he described, and he is absolutely right to be concerned for his personal safety in a variety of situations because of the color of his skin. Exactly as he described, he is exactly right to feel that way. But what is also undoubtedly true it is certain that Matthew has experienced situations in which he perceived discrimination where no genuine discrimination actually existed. So for instance, you know, taking one of his examples as he described approaching the bar and having a bartender react thinking that he was going to uh, steal a tip left on the bar, you know, it's certainly possible for the bartender to have reacted in the exact same way based on anyone walking up there and, and race may have had nothing to do with it whatsoever. 
But that's the problem for Matthew is it's impossible for him to know on a case-by-case basis what the actual situation is and what the other person's motivations are. So this shouldn't be seen as trying to minimize the perceived discrimination. If anything, it's another layer of burden. The problem for Matthew is that there's no way for him to know which situation is genuine and which is not. And so he is probably correct that the large percentage of the time, the discrimination he feels is real, but that only makes it that much easier to feel it when it's not really there. So it feels worse than it is, which sucks for him. And, and there's no way for him to know, uh, you, you know that, that, that the situation should feel any different. And as for Dave, you know, he's clearly in a tough economic situation, as he describes. He undoubtedly feels that he's not benefiting in any dramatic way based on his race. And so his focus is almost entirely on economics because that's where he feels his greatest hardship. Uh, Where he makes his mistake is that he then extrapolates his own very narrow perspective to the rest of society. So I wanted to play these two clips at the end of a climate change episode specifically to make a comparison with, with that issue. As we just heard in this show, people regularly confuse weather and climate. You know, if it's snowing somewhere where there's a Fox News camera crew, then the entire station is going to use that as evidence of the non-existence of climate change. Believing in the science of climate change doesn't even have to factor into the conversation about differentiating between climate and weather. Even if you think climate change is a hoax, you still have to recognize there is a difference between those two things. Weather is local. Climate is global. And so Dave is blind to the climate of privilege that he lives in and, and, you know, that society is built of because of his very narrowly perceived weather system of personal economic hardship. And so then along these these same lines, uh, you know, in the conversation about climate, extreme weather situations are ever increasing around the globe in line exactly with predictions made by climate scientists regarding extreme weather uh, worsening during climate change. So as any climate scientist will happily clarify for you, no individual extreme weather event can be directly attributed to climate change. However, the occurrences of of extreme weather taken in aggregate paint a clear picture of the connection between climate change and extreme weather events. It is undeniable. And so with Matthew and his situations, No single event of perceived discrimination unless the offender is incredibly overt about it or or even, you know, just moderately overt. If if it's overt, you know, okay, that's that's a given. But if it's not overt, then then an instance of perceived discrimination shouldn't necessarily be attributed to black burden and and the oppression of, of his race. But all of those situations taken in aggregate clearly points to a climate of oppression. And so, as was elegantly stated by a caller you know, a while back regarding white privilege, when it comes to privilege, it's not about you. Every conversation about privilege is always about the aggregate effect of how the climate of privilege and oppression can affect the localized weather of individuals' lives. So for people like Dave, who are in a tough situation and they don't see you know, their privilege coming through uh, loud and clear in their own lives... You can't allow yourself to then believe that it doesn't exist just because you're not the the direct beneficiary in giant ways all the time doesn't mean it's not real. 
And it's also negating all of the ways in which you are privileged that you j are just blind to. That's part of the problem with privilege is, is that so often people don't even recognize it. And, and you know, Dave, in, in one of the more comical statements he made, was recognizing that Trayvon Martin was almost certainly killed because of his race and then denied that there's any privilege in, in being white. Not having to worry about getting killed based purely on your race is a pretty nice privilege to have and something that people like Dave should really begin to recognize regardless of his economic situation. So those are my thoughts on that. I just want to shift gears for a second and let you know the fundraising is still going very well for Our Blue Media. We are up past the uh, the ten and a half thousand dollar mark. Uh, very exciting. We're, we're on our way to uh, to fifteen thousand dollars. That is our goal. Um, if you uh, are interested, please check out OurBlueMedia.com. All the details about this great program we're running, we're really excited about. It's going to revolutionize independent media, and, and all the details about the program are right there on the fundraising page. And and uh, and, and please consider donating. We, we have more than 100 funders who have uh, chipped in so far. But, you know, to only have 100 funders and raise more than $10,500 means that people are being incredibly generous about this. So I want to thank everyone who has been donating and, uh, you know, and just let everyone else know, like, look, like people are clearly excited about this based on their donations. So all the more reason for you to check it out. And if you can donate any, you know, any donation of, of just $20 or more gets your name listed on the site itself as a thank you to everyone who is coming together to help make this possible. So if that's a little incentive for you, have at it, uh, but we'll take donations of any amount. So if you if you think you believe in the in, in the mission, then chip in what you can. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening and supporting the show. Everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, of course. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thought lines now black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Bitch burning on a shining sheet The only